Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. Today is Tuesday, August 24, 2010. I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALRPRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Today's guest is bankruptcy attorney Joseph Michelotti, uh, who practices here in Chicagoland and has office in Oak Brook, Illinois. Joe received his Juris Doctor degree from the John Marshall Law School in 1983 and is licensed to practice in all Illinois state courts as well as federal courts in the northern and central districts of Illinois. Joe has actively participated in uh, practiced in court since November of 1983 and is licensed for insurance and real estate brokerage as well. Joe is also a 1975 graduate of McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, with a BA in History. Joe's membership in various legal and professional organizations include the DuPage County Bar Association, Will County Bar Association, Illinois State Bar Association, National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys, the DuPage National Association of Insurance and Financial Associates, as well as the DuPage Estate Planning Council. Joe grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, and lives in the western suburbs with his family. When he gets a chance, he's out biking, kayaking, and skiing. To uh, find more information about Joe directly, you can go to his website at www.michelottilaw.com, and I'll spell that for you. It's M-I-C-H-E-L-O-T-T-I-L-A-W.com. Now, today, uh, Joe is going to talk to us a little bit about his uh, experience in uh, the field of bankruptcy protection and answer some questions that uh, we've received uh, in the past and that people have asked about bankruptcy law. And before we begin, we want to remind everybody that we have two weekly Law Talk radio shows. First, the Consumer's Law Journal, this show, which airs on Tuesday, and second, the Lawyer's Toolbox, which airs on Thursday afternoons. Both Law Talk radio shows air at 3 p.m. Central, which is also 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific time. We do have a great show for you this afternoon. We invite callers to submit their questions either by email to info, which is I-N-F-O at A-L-R-P-R-A dot com. Again, info at A-L-R-P-R-A dot com. Or also by calling into area code 917-889-9732 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. The telephone number is, again, 917-889-9732 and option 1 to be placed in the queue. We do have a short contest uh, for people today from ALRPRA. Of course, we have uh, promotional contests sometimes from our guests, but today is uh, from us. Um, anybody who calls in today receives a free raise uh, in the running, rather, for a drawing to see a free admission to the quarter, third quarter Social Media Update 2010 seminar that is going to be uh, held, sponsored by ALRPRA here in Chicago on Wednesday, September 22nd, and the regular price of admission is $25. Um, participants not located in Chicago will be able to attend via webinar. Now, last, our disclaimer before we get going, this is a general information program designed to offer practice management tips and legal tips for the consumers. The advice on this show does not constitute legal advice and results may vary based on the specifics of your matter. You are encouraged to privately consult a professional and should be advised that the laws may vary from state to state as they could apply to comments made on the show. Comments made on this show between attorneys and the public also do not constitute an attorney-client relationship. All callers do remain confidential and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Enough from me. Now to Joe. Joe, how are you doing today? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing great, and I think that I it's just about time to uh, ask some questions about bankruptcy. I know this seems like a really open and shut practice area to a lot of folks, but there's actually a lot out there that people don't know. There certainly is a lot of nuance to uh, different areas of bankruptcy, and uh, very jurisdictionally uh, specific. So that the, what is case law in southern uh, Illinois is not necessarily case law in northern Illinois, nor between uh, the different states or the different uh, federal circuits. So it really does vary from place to place all over. It, How did you originally get into bankruptcy? Um, I actually started with a small firm when I got out of law school um, and uh, kind of just learned the ropes at the hands of uh, wiser attorneys and uh, have built up my practice since then. So how long have you been doing bankruptcy work? Uh, since 1983, which would put us almost 27 years. That's a long time. Have you seen a lot of changes in the code since uh, it's since you started? 
There certainly have been a lot of changes in the code. Um, initially, when I started, there was a big change in the code in 1984, but uh, that wasn't a change to me because that's right when I was learning how to do things. Uh, the biggest change so far was the uh, enactment of the changes in the year 2005, which substantially changed the law as far as limitations on income and your ability to file certain types of cases. Hmm. I know that there were a lot of commercials on TV at the time talking about get in, call, and uh, you know, get your bankruptcy before uh, the law changes. There are going to be substantial changes. Has it really uh, changed things to the point where it's not, you know, no longer worth doing a bankruptcy? I mean, have they really made it? What is it? What was it? The means test changed. Right. The, the means test is, is uh, determines the ability, your your ability, uh, as to whether you can file a Chapter Seven, which is a classic type of bankruptcy or a chapter 13 where you're going to be making payments over time. Um, it's kind of surprising though that most, many people that call me think that bankruptcy is no longer an option, period. And uh, that's kind of the way the law was presented in 2005. And a lot of people just, just have not heard that um, you still have the ability to file bankruptcy. In fact, most people still qualify for a chapter 7 bankruptcy. The way they do you use the think, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask if, you know, what seems to me like uh, they're making it, you know, more difficult for people who maybe might take advantage of the protections offered by the code, like, you know, maybe businesses who are filing up every five seconds or something. That's what I always thought. Well, they just, for, for specific consumers or for consumers, what they've done is made several hoops that you have to jump through. Um, number one, you have to take a class prior to bankruptcy. It's called a pre-bankruptcy certification. Most people can do that over the Internet, and it takes about two hours, but that's just kind of one little barrier to entry. Then the second barrier to entry, once again, is the income limitations. What they do is they look at the uh, uh, individual state's poverty level, and they set that at 150% of poverty level. So, for example, in Illinois, a single filer uh, is qualified to do Chapter 7 so long as they make less than $48,000 a year. Um, if they make more than $48,000 a year, there's a uh, uh, another qualification procedure that they have to go through, uh, and they may or may not be eligible for Chapter 7 after that. Most people, in fact, all people would probably be eligible to do a Chapter 13, but a Chapter 7 uh, is really what most people want to do because the idea behind a uh, bankruptcy is to get a fresh start with the chapter seven that's what's going to happen uh, you will uh, no longer have any debts and you can start brand new with a fresh start now what are some of the differences between the chapter seven and the 13 again can you uh, explain that in a little further detail sure chapter seven once again is a classic kind of bankruptcy the idea behind a chapter seven is to get a fresh start so you walk into the bankruptcy with a large amount of debt which you are unable to handle and you walk out of the bankruptcy with all your debts discharged and then you have the ability to build up your credit again uh, chapter 13 as originally envisioned was uh, a way to protect your assets uh, most particularly the family home. So that if you got behind on your mortgage payments, it was a way to continue paying your mortgage payments and then get caught up. And this would also be true if you had other large assets you wanted to keep. Uh, I had one client that had a large boat that they wanted to keep or if there was a vacation home you wanted to keep or something like that. But you would pay uh, your – you continue to pay off your secured debt and then you'd be paying off your unsecured creditors as much as they would have gotten had you filed a Chapter 7 and you just liquidated everything that you had. So really, um, the 13 is all reorganization? And it, discharge? It's, a type, it's a type of reorganization. The, the, the reorganization code of the bankruptcy would be a Chapter 11, which is more of a business uh, okay. type uh, reorganization. But it has a lot of facets in common with the reorganization. But also, if your income is too high, now you are forced to do a Chapter 13. Mm, okay. Now, how many th this year, uh, and, you know, I suppose I'm not going to limit it to this year, but um, since 2007, uh, you know, as the economy has um, has taken a dip, uh, have you seen a, a large increase in the amount of filings, or is it pretty much the status quo, or do, are there more Chapter 7s right now, more 13s? Uh, you know, what's the current state of affairs of bankruptcy? 
Okay. Uh, media reports last week said that there had been a million bankruptcies filed in the United States up until that point. Uh, filed a bankruptcy this morning with a case number of 37,000 for the Northern District of Illinois. So it looks like there's going to be well over 50,000 in the Northern District of Illinois. Um, my experience is that most people qualify for Chapter 7 um, because of the job losses. What, what, what I see a lot of is a lot of uh, former two-income couples that are now a single-income couple, and the single income that they have is not as much as they were earning two years ago. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they qualify for Chapter 7. Let me get. Let me just go right at this. This is a real direct question. How many, I mean, is this a death sentence to people's credit? I mean, the, in the past, you know, we'd always heard, you know, don't do that. You know, it's going to be on there for seven years. You're never going to be able to get a car or a house. Kids won't go to school. I mean, how has the code changed? That it's. Or I don't suppose changes in the code have made it, but um, you know, what is it really a death sentence to your credit? Well, your credit is determined by your FICA score, and. Uh, FICA is a proprietary way of determining a person's credit. So those, that information has never been released. I mean, we can see what happens to people's scores when they do things, and we can kind of guess, but there's no actual answer to that question. Mm-hmm. The way I answer that question to most people is, if you have a judgment against you in Illinois, that judgment is alive for seven years. So that stays on your credit for seven years. It can also be revived twice. So in theory, a judgment could last for 21 years. A bankruptcy stays on your credit report for eight years. Uh, after eight years, uh, the bankruptcy is taken off your credit report. Um, late pay, no pay, that kind of thing stays on your credit report for at least 24 months. So it's kind of a juggling act. Mm-hmm. Uh, what bankruptcy does in particular to your credit is uh, not so much that it takes away your credit, but it, it brings you back to square one. So it's almost as if when you were leaving high school, when you were 18 years old, it wasn't so much that you had bad credit, you had no credit. You couldn't walk into a car dealer and buy a car. You couldn't walk into a mortgage company and buy a house because you had no credit history. It's been my experience that coming out of bankruptcy, most people, as long as they are good about paying off their debts, have credit in the high 600s within 24 months after filing the bankruptcy. Now, that's not superior credit, but it is as good as probably 60, 70% of people have in the United States. And you are what, certainly... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, what kind of uh, things do you encourage them to do? Because I've heard that before, that it doesn't matter what happens, you know, what, what matters is everything after the bankruptcy. What do you suggest people do? Um, that all depends on person's particular situation. Um, one thing we recommend is to get something called a secured credit card. What a secured credit card is, is you place in a certain amount of money between $500 and $1,000 with either a bank or a credit issuing agency, and they give you a credit card. It works just like a credit card, except they're holding your money, and you buy your gas and groceries with the credit card. You make 12 payments on time. You're going to have credit above 600 you make the next 12 payments over time, you'll have credit in the high 600s. And this works almost universally. Some people uh, reaffirm their debts in bankruptcy. For example, if you had a house and you want to keep the house, you will reaffirm that meaning, notwithstanding the fact that I'm filing bankruptcy, I agree to be bound by this debt. In that case, they wouldn't have to do that because they're making mortgage payments every month. As long as they continue to make the mortgage payments every month, their credit's going to get correspondingly higher. Mm-hmm. Now, these these secured credit cards that you mentioned, when they get the bill, is because it is prepaid, it's secured. They they still they still run up a balance and pay the bill like a regular credit card. But if they default, that's what that security money is there for. That's correct. Okay, so. Um, so there is the you know, are they usually is there a limit on that card based on um, the amount of money that's backing it so, so for like a thousand dollars thousand dollar limit that's exactly right oh that's so not whatever, a bad idea for a lot of folks then well a lot of people will need credit cards to uh, use a hotel room rent a car all that kind of thing that they won't accept that debit cards for. Now, where can someone get uh, a secured card? Do you point them in any direction? Do you know of any banks of interest or, you know? Most major banks, so Wells Fargo, Bank of America, have secured credit card programs, but also 
go on the internet, and there's plenty of them as well. Yeah, is there a large interest rate with those? Um, typically, their their credit card interest rates uh, or higher credit card interest rates, I should say, between like twelve and fifteen percent. But the idea is not to run a debt on the card. The idea is to make the payments on the card because that's what builds up your credit. Exactly, and you think, and so, well, that's a good idea for them pe- people out there who think that it is a death sentence, uh, you know, per se. So, I have more questions, but let's pause quickly for our first uh, sponsor break. For anyone who just tuned in, you are listening to the Consumer Law Journal on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. When you need the right legal services to advance creativity, and we're talking now about intellectual property, you need to call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, Internet, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the Like button on the law firm's business page, you'll receive periodic blog updates with recent developments and the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Now back to the Consumer's Law Journal. We're talking with attorney Joe Michelotti uh, here in Chicago, his office in uh, DuPage County out in Oak Brook, but Joe does serve uh, clients all over uh, the area. Joe, can you uh, tell us where you're, um, who, who's a good client for you? Are they all over the Chicagoland area? Uh, typically, we're uh, the uh, northeast Illinois area. Ma- the great majority of my clients come from probably within 5 to 10 miles of my office, so DuPage County, Western Cook County, uh, although I do get referrals, uh, some in Lake County, some in Will County, uh, Kendall, Kane, McHenry. Yeah. Uh, so, but and, you know, you've been out there, uh, you know, pounding the pavement, so to speak, for many years. So you're well known in the area. So um, I know that if I have anyone who wants to go do bankruptcy, I'll send them your way. <laughs> sure. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the uh, credit worthiness and things. Um, when people talk about their concerns with their credit and wanting to rebuild, w- do you find that most of them are more worried about employment decisions? And I know that there was a recent change um, in the law that was in the paper. Um, are they worried about employability or losing the house, losing the car? What's their main concern? Well, different people have different concerns. Um, a typical concern we have going into bankruptcy is uh, they've let their bills go for so long that there's a constant barrage of uh, phone calls every day with people threatening them for money. Um, that, that, that's a heavy motivator. Um, we, we talked before the show about the foreclosure cases. Once they get that foreclosure notice on their door, there's a motivation to do something. Um, you know, everybody. Every, there's no everybody's case is unique. Uh, although some cases are kind of typical, um, the typical person I'm seeing these days, uh, between say 30 and 50, uh, usually, like I said, uh, a couple that was uh, previously had two incomes and now only has one income, generally has uh, two or three kids and trying to save a house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they're looking to save their house and they file for bankruptcy protection, are they, you know, what are they relying on more, uh, exemptions or loan modifications? What What's going on there? Well, there's a number of approaches that we can take to uh, for a foreclosure case. Um, sometimes we just have to sit down and figure out whether or not it's worth saving the house. People own houses for emotional reasons, and right now a lot of times houses are white elephants. If you have a house that you paid that you owe 700000 on and it's only worth 300000 really no point in saving that. Um, you're better off walking away and taking advantage of the, you know, taking advantage of the economy because I don't think the housing prices are going to go anywhere in the next two years. And if you did a bankruptcy now and got discharged in two years, you'd be able to buy a house. So um, maybe... Uh Maybe some of the people who bought the, you know, I know the house prices in, uh, in, you know, in DuPage were going through the roof. I know prices in Naperville were unbelievable, um, you know, a few years back. And, you know, to anyone who bought during that time, saw a huge devaluation. That's right. I mean, in Oakbrook here, there's, there's been a lot of that. There are people who just spent tons and tons of money on houses because actually Oakbrook was very tax uh, 
at a very low rate compared to the rest of DuPage County. You got a lot of houses and, and very low taxes. Uh, well, that's because of the malls there too, right? Right, but the but the price inflation between uh, 2004 and 2007 was tremendous. And then when the musical the music stopped on the musical chairs game, uh, a lot of people were left holding these huge mortgages on houses that are worth maybe you know 75, 60 percent of what the mortgage is. I can remember, uh, you know, back, you know, I'd, back when I was working in family law, seeing a lot of people with, uh, you know, houses in the million dollar range were in, you know, houses that were priced at 1.7 were going for like 900,000, um, you know, all over, you know, Oak Brook, Burr Ridge, I mean, all over the place, um, you know, so I, I can see the need to to take a good serious look at that. Um, now, what about the loan modifications? Do, you, you were talking about some different options. First, on the other hand, there, there are banks that are doing loan modifications. Um, there's a lot of advertisements that, that make it seem like you can snap your fingers and something's going to happen, but that's mm-hmm. not true. I would say probably 20% of people are successful with loan modifications. Um, why, only still, why so low? Because uh, the programs are... Income-based, um, there's a couple of federal programs that, uh, that most people do not qualify for, so most of the programs that they're doing are uh, investor-based. And uh, because the investors are kind of, uh, there's a lot of offshore investors and things like that that don't really understand the U.S. housing market, that they would rather have the home go into foreclosure than that, than to work something mm-hmm. out. Bank of America right now has a program where they are reducing uh, principal. So they're they're one company that that's been pretty good to work with, but uh, other companies are are not as easy to work with. Mm-hmm. But it well, certainly it is one like quiver quiver in your arrow or one uh, arrow in your quiver to to look at a mortgage modification. Mm-hmm. How long do they have to do that if they uh, file for bankruptcy protection? I know that there's you know I'll, we'll get more into the procedure in a minute, but um, how long does it you know, do they? Does the process of loan modification, is that something that can be accomplished within the time from filing the bankruptcy petition to a discharge? Yes, it can. Uh, typically what's going to happen, though, the loan modification process is a long period of time. It might be six six to eight to ten months. Mm-hmm. And we would we would keep the bankruptcy open longer than normal just to accomplish the loan modification. Now, are the courts generally uh, allowing you to do that, or do they have a... A sort of a sniff test on on whether you're actually going to get the loan modification. Do they ask you those questions? No. If you can show that there's actual progress being made, the, the judges are very accommodating as far as uh, loan modification. Oh. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about was the uh, the automatic stay provision. Um, sometimes people are, are interested in that. Can you talk a little bit about automatic stay? Okay. When you file a bankruptcy case, an automatic stay is put into effect meaning that no creditor can take any action against the person who has filed bankruptcy. So they can't file a lawsuit, they can't garnish their wages, they can't put a brick on their bank account, they can't call them, they can't send them letters. All collection activities must cease. And that is in effect, on the filing of the first bankruptcy, that's in effect for the entire bankruptcy unless the court gives a specific creditor permission to go forward with their case. Typically that would be the continuation of a mortgage foreclosure or the continuation of the repossession of an automobile. And mm-hmm. but that other other than them getting court permission to do it, they can't do anything. And a second bankruptcy filing within a year, that automatic stay provision only lasts for thirty days. And on a third bankruptcy filing within a year there is no automatic stay. Can you talk a little bit about the first, second, and third? Because I don't know that many people are, um, you know, accustomed to hearing that. Um, you know, what are the limits there? Well, there, there's actually no, there's no statutory limit. There's no limit by law as to the number of bankruptcy filings you could file in a year. But then the question becomes, why would you do all these bankruptcy filings in a year? Um, first place. Uh, you're only entitled to one discharge every eight years on a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Um, So most people would never go through that process. But some people file bankruptcy just for a limited purpose. Say their uh, house was just about to go to auction and they had no other choice 
they file a bankruptcy uh, to prevent the house going to auction because once the house goes to auction, they'll never have a chance to get it back. And they don't have their paperwork together, and the case gets dismissed. The case, the bankruptcy gets dismissed? The, or bank, the, the bankruptcy would get dismissed because the debtor couldn't file their paperwork with the bankruptcy court on time. So then, in theory, they could file another case after the dismissal, assuming that they had all their paperwork together and go forward with the bankruptcy case. See, some people file bankruptcies tactically just to stop a certain action from happening. The, uh-huh. You know, the sale of a house, the repossession of a car, closing of a business, something like that. They just need that that that, that breath to, to get their stuff together. You know, maybe, okay. uh, well, for example, like a, a, say a real estate agent was waiting on a commission, and that was the difference. And then they know they're going to get their commission in two months, but in the meantime, someone's going to auction off their property. So that stay would give them the two months to, to uh, time to get that commission. And then they can get everything back together. Hmm. So it, that's I, that's something that uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that you could do that as a tactical um, as a tactical thing. So not my next question are what are the limits of the automatic stay? And the first thing that's popping into my head that you have not mentioned yet um, is wage garnishment. What happens if someone's got a judgment out there? Let's say they stopped paying their student loans, couldn't pay them, and uh, student loan providers getting a uh, a judge, they've got a judgment, they've got a garnishment. Um, will the bankruptcy stop that, or are there any limitations on what the stay will do or not do? Well, student loans kind of special because student loans are generally non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. So let's take another thing. Like, Let's say we just got a judgment from uh, Citibank Credit Card, and then Citibank Credit Card is garnishing, is, is filed a, uh, a wage gar- garnishment citation in the Circuit Court of Cook County. Once your employer receives that uh, wage garnishment citation, they're supposed to hold money back because the uh, uh, Citibank credit cards now has a lien against that property. If you file the bankruptcy prior to the wage garnishment citation being filed, then then Citibank credit card has no right to collect on that money because now that's your property or property of the bankruptcy estate. If you file the bankruptcy after that wage garnishment affidavit has been filed, then city, city, more, city credit card has a lien against that, and their lien is superior to your ownership interest. So technically, you know, when you file is going to be determinative of what happens to your money. So, and one of the things that you uh, talked about there, um, that I'm sorry, I'm picking up on, which I I thought was you know an interesting thing to highlight, um, is that the bankruptcy trustee is called a trustee because there you know it it functions like a trust where the property really, like you said, is held, um, you know. So there's a trust situation uh, sort of going on. Is that I mean, it is a, a pure like a trust, or you know, how much can you describe that a little bit? If you follow my question, okay. Well, bank. Well, the classic. Let's talk about the classic Chapter Seven bankruptcy, where where um, mm-hmm. you're trying to get rid of all your debts. Basically, what you're saying is, yeah, it, it, it is a trust in a classic sense. Classic sense of being a trust that there's a third party that's going to be holding on to things. And basically, what you're saying is, Mr. Trustee, here's all my assets. Here's all my liabilities. Okay, because by law I have certain ex- I have exemptions on certain assets. Give me those exempt assets back, and with my non-exempt ex- assets, you work off pay- work out paying off my creditors. As a practical matter, most people most people have all non-exempt assets, so the creditors never get paid. But in some cases, uh, there might be an asset. There might be, for example, I'm trying to pick off the top of my head. Say a guy had a uh, somebody had a classic automobile that was worth, uh, you know, on the market, say twenty thousand dollars. If you can't exempt that, then the the trustee is going to take that vehicle and sell it and use it to pay off your creditors. Mm-hmm. Now, the exemption. Well, what what is? You know, can you talk a little bit more about that for those who don't understand what that concept is? Okay, under bankruptcy law. Well, under bankruptcy law in the state of Illinois, um, 
Illinois that determines what kind of exemptions you have in in property. Um, and for real for uh, homestead real estate, it's fifteen thousand dollars. For an automobile, it's twenty four hundred dollars. Um, all your uh, IRAs, four hundred one k's, four hundred three b's, those are all exempt. Uh, any pension money that you might have coming in, that's exempt. Social Security money you have coming in, that's exempt. Um, a personal injury, personal injury settlement up to seventy-five hundred dollars. There's a whole list of of exemptions, and uh, we have to look at you know what property people have before we determine you know what we're going to place our exemptions against. Okay. We'll let's pause real quick for our second uh, sponsor break. And actually, incidentally, this is the our sponsor. I, I see. I recognize the telephone number calling in, and our sponsor is on the line. I believe he's going to say hi. Maybe he has a question about bankruptcy. That's on point. Um, it's Jim Thompson from the Get Clients Now program. He's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach. You should talk to. His program's called Get Clients Now. He'll help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is going to be a recurring guest, and actually already has been, uh, here on our uh, Consumer Law Journal program and on the Lawyer's Toolbox show on Thursdays regarding attorney marketing. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net, which is, again, MidwestConsultants.net, and also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. Um, again, for callers, the number to call in today is area code 917-889-9732. Press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue and ask Joe McLotty a question about bankruptcy. We want to remind you all that this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this program does not constitute an attorney-client relationship nor uh, legal advice, and you are recommended uh, to call an attorney uh, you know, separately uh, if you have questions about bankruptcy. So back to our show. Um, Joe, you ready to take a call? Sure. All right. This is Jim Thompson. We'll say hi to Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Joe. Hey, Nick. Uh, you're going to think that I do this uh, this timing on purpose when you're giving me. <laughs> Your I sponsor pops up when you call. I know. <laughs> I, I swear that's not the way it happened. What happened was I could not find the phone number, and I'm looking and looking for the last five minutes for it. But anyway, what I'd like to do is say hi, Joe, and and, and I um. Obviously, I practiced a number of years ago, and I've retired, but I get a lot of people who ask me about bankruptcies and things of this nature, and one of the reasons I really wanted to come on the show is just listen to what Joe had to say and also get a contact so that when somebody comes up to me um, in the future and says, what do, you, do you know anybody that handles bankruptcy, et cetera, I can certainly um, make that referral. So I, I really want to listen to kind of what Joe has to say. Okay. Do you have any questions? I, I really don't know what you were talking about, so I don't have any questions right now. Um, if we can kind of go forward, and then uh, maybe something will come up. That sounds good to me, Joe. Do you uh, feel uh, feel like fielding some questions? If you've got any, sure. All right. Well, let's continue as we were talking about. We were just. Uh, talking about exemptions and what property may be exempt under the statute. Um, and did you have any follow-up uh, to the exemption uh, talk, Joe, at all? Um, well, a lot of people ask me, you know, what's going to happen to my house or my car if I file bankruptcy? And if we use the exemptions properly and it's a good fit for the person to keep their house or car, um, we can file a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which, once again, is the classic kind of bankruptcy where you get all your debt, get rid of all your debt, but you get to keep your house or you get to keep your car. Um, we talked before about uh, you know whether or not it makes sense to keep your house, but let's assume for a second that it does make sense to keep your house. It's, you're not exactly underwater, but maybe you're even on the house and it's a neighborhood that you like and your kids are going to school and all that good stuff. Um, if a couple owns a house, then they have a $30,000 exemption in the house, a uh, homestead exemption in the house. So let's say their mortgage is uh, 
two hundred and twenty thousand and the house is worth two hundred and fifty thousand. Well, even though they have the thirty thousand dollars equity in the house, that exemption uh pulls back all that equ- pulls back all that equity. So they could could they could do something called a reaffirmation where they go to the mortgage company and they agree to be bound by that debt as so long as they get to keep the house. Um and then they will come out of the bankruptcy continuing to make their mortgage payments, building up their credit like we talked about before, and still living in the house. And their creditors cannot go after their house. And the same thing is true uh, with a car. Let's say you're making payments on a car. You have this $2,400 exemption in the car. As long as you uh, don't have any more than $2,400 in equity in the car, you can go to the auto finance company, GMAC or Chrysler Motor. I guess they're not around anymore, but uh, Ford Motor Credit. Say, we'll continue to make payments on the car as long as you let us keep the car. And they'll agree to do that. And then you walk out of the bankruptcy and you still have your car. So you can keep your house, your car, get rid of the credit cards, get rid of other stuff, uh, the dischargeable debt, wipe it away, and get a fresh start. And that's, I think, I don't think a lot of people really understand that, and they think that the house has to be sold, the car has to be gone, they're going to be living in a small apartment, in a bread line. I mean, it's you, you, it's been drilled into our consumer brains that bankruptcy is just the worst possible thing, and you know you are just the worst person walking the you know walking the planet if you do that. So it's really not the not the case. No, not at all. And I think one thing that I see that bothers me that people do not understand is that they should never, ever, ever, ever attack their uh, retirement funds in order to maintain current payments. So if you got money in an IRA or 401k or 403b, that money's exempt. Let's say you had 200000 in your IRA. You can still file bankruptcy, and that money cannot be touched by your creditors. Because typically what will happen is when the creditors start squeezing you, they're going to ask you for sources of funds, and people always talk about their retirement funds. And they'll say, fine, take money out of your IRA, pay us, and we'll be off your back. And that's what they'll do. And I've seen lots of people drain lots of money out of their retirement, and now it's gone. And they could have filed bankruptcy, and they could have kept it. And once again, they could have kept their house. They could have kept their car. That's just I can't believe that someone would uh well and you know you're telling me things a lot that I didn't know either. Um you know, let's talk a little bit about dischargeable versus non-dischargeable debts. You mentioned that student loans are not dischargeable and I can recall and maybe maybe it's just such a fine nuance. I remember in law school someone talked I never took bankruptcy class but someone said that you actually could it's just you have to basically prove that you have, um, you know, absolutely no ability to work? I mean, is there is there any limited instance in which student loans are, are dischargeable? Or, you know, and besides that, what about taxes? You know, what are some other general rules about dischargeable versus non-dischargeable debt? Okay. Up until 1998, student loans were dischargeable. Uh, there were some 1998 amendments to the code that made student loans non-dischargeable. And in the 2005 Act, uh, Private loans that were for educational purposes also became non-dischargeable. So I see a lot of people now actually that went to these uh, fly-by-night colleges where they they just gave them you know signed up for loans for them and then now they have a ton of student loan debt and they never actually learned anything. Uh, student student loans are dischargeable uh, if you can show uh, that you're making that you're you're currently trying to make payments. Uh, that you have a condition that does not allow you to earn income, and that condition is going to be uh, a permanent condition. So, for example, uh, uh, I've had clients, usually if you're disabled for Social Security purposes, you can discharge the debt. Uh, Most people are not able to do that, though. Um, other debts that are non-dischargeable would be uh, income taxes, where the return was filed less than three years previously. Um, debts for intentional acts, like uh, if you punch somebody in the nose and they got a judgment against you because of that, that's non-dischargeable. And debts that are related to uh, uh, DUIs or drug drug-related driving. So if you if you got into an accident and you were found DUI, that that uh, that would be non-dischargeable. Um, taxes are dischargeable if the return was due uh, 
uh, more than three years previously. Was due or was filed? Was I'm sorry, was filed more than three years previously. Now, so what about, okay, my next question was, um, you know, any debts that can be changed from dischargeable to non-dischargeable, is that anything that happens? Well, say someone sells the debt, you know, you know, I suppose that they'd have to what come back and prove that it was originally a student loan. I mean, you know, debts are bought and sold left and right, aren't they? I left out one category of debt, and that debt is non-dischargeable. And that uh, it's a big category too. My mind's not working too well today. Uh, anything that that's uh, fraudulently uh, obtained, any any debts that are fraudulently obtained are non-dischargeable. Um, there's always a question as to whether or not uh, there was actual fraud involved, though. Um, so, for example, Illinois has a, a fraudulent check cashing statute, and if you if you make a check and you don't have enough money in the account to cover the check, um, I forgot the name of the statute. It's it's in the criminal code, though. But you become liable for tri triple the amount of that plus attorney's fees and some other stuff. Um, hmm. Under under bankruptcy law in the Northern District of Illinois, that is not determinative of that being fraudulent or not. So okay. the creditor the creditor would have to come into court and prove there was actual fraud, prove actual intent. So if you filed on that particular debt, you would be discharged unless the creditor took some affirmative action. Now, what, now what happens uh, from a logistics standpoint to the, the, on the determination of dischargeability is that you know if you petition um you know does the trustee step in and say no that's non-dischargeable i mean what if there's no creditor whoever responds the uh it depends on the exact debt some debts are by their very nature non-dischargeable such as okay. uh, taxes and student loans you you would have to take some affirmative step to show that it's non-dischargeable for some reason. Mm -hmm. Other debts are only dischargeable or only non-dischargeable if the creditor steps up and says, for example, what we were just talking about, about the fraud, only if the creditor comes in and says, no, that debt was obtained by fraud, the discharge should not apply to that person. And what the way they would do that is they'd have what's called an adversary proceeding, which is like a separate lawsuit outside of the bankruptcy to prove that. So, is, so let's say, for example, uh, a medical student, um, we'll, we'll pick on them. Let's say the medical student has a bunch of student loan debt. They can't find a job as a doctor because the economy is bad. Um, and, you know, they can't, so the trustee will say, no, sorry, that is, uh, you know, a per se non-dischargeable thing. It's not like they have to, you know, gamble on the creditor not showing up and hoping they don't send someone. It was, so that one, one, the trustee, would the trustee step in and say, no, no red, you know, stop sign? No, typically it's going to be Sally May or the U.S. Department of Education mm -hmm. will continue to collect on the debt, and you you can't say, well, no, I was discharged from this debt. Okay, so then, well, wait, uh, can you say that again? Okay, I'm, I'm probably not making myself clear. There there are certain debts, and one of the, certain debts are just per se non-dischargeable. Right. Okay. Um, so those those debts you'll never be discharged from. And uh, like money for child support, uh, fines and penalties to government agencies, uh, taxes that are uh, inside of that three-year window. So the, the creditor doesn't have to do anything. That, that's, okay. not, that's like outside the bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. But there are, there are other debts... Um, uh, for example, a debt where there's an allegation of fraud, where the creditor would say, no, that, that money was fraudulently taken from us. We can prove it. And then they, the creditor actually has to go to court and prove that there was actual fraud. Got it. Got it. Now, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about the procedure and what happens from um, from filing to, you know, and of course, I, you know, again, I want to remind uh, everyone that, um, you know, that you had indicated that the Chapter 7 is operating, but also the Chapter 13. Now, let me just quick uh, jump in and ask, does that difference, if you file Chapter 13, um, does that affect, you know, dischargeability? Does that, it's not really, I mean, you're not trying, 
it's not how much of a difference is it because you said there were some things that were still dischargeable um how does that work does it really dischargeability in the chapter 7 verses 13 the dischargeability is the same. Uh, however, how things are treated are, is different because you're making a payment plan. You have that the stay will be in effect. So if, let's say uh, you had a non-dischargeable debt like a, a ta- income tax debt. Mm-hmm. During the course of the Chapter 13 bankruptcy, you could pay all or a portion of that uh, income tax debt inside the Chapter 13 bankruptcy. Oh, okay. When the bankruptcy is over, uh, the, the stay is over as well. So if you haven't paid the whole thing off, then yeah, the IRS is going to come after you to, to get the balance. Got it. All right. Let's pause for our third sponsor break, then we'll come back and we'll see if Jim Thompson has any questions for you. Uh, for those of you who are just tuning in lately, you are listening to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. The call-in number to call in and ask a question to bankruptcy attorney Joseph Michelotti is area code 917-889-9732. Again, 8 8- Nine one seven eight eight nine nine seven three two, and it's option one to be placed in the caller queue. Uh, our third sponsor today is our friend, credit damage expert George Finder. Uh, George Finder is one of the only credit experts in the country, and attorneys and plaintiffs who have retained his services in the past have heard huge damage awards in various uh, practice areas such as personal injury, employment law, family, as well as general civil litigation. By, leaning, uh, by learning to incorporate uh, credit damage questions in the intake process, you and your staff will learn to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. And right now, any of our listeners who do contact credit damage expert George Finder and tell them that they heard about him on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio are going to be eligible to receive free of charge one hour of CLE presentation. So grab a pen and take down this email. It is credit damage associates at gmx.com again credit damage associates at gmx.com available nationwide credit damage expert george finder's website is full of resources please visit creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about george finder and his expert services george is also a guest here on the law talk radio program uh tune in the first tuesdays of the month where george answers questions from the public on credit damage issues similar to the uh show today with joseph michelotti talking about bankruptcy so again if you have questions on credit damage uh, events and uh, credit damage lawsuits uh, tune in at two, every first Tuesday. So again, our telephone number to dial in, 917-889-9732, option one for the caller queue. Again, this is a general information program, and the advice on this show does not constitute legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. Um, Jim Thompson, you still there on the line? Yeah, I'm still here, Nick. And, uh, you know, what, what Joe has said, uh, one of the things that just has really come through, quite frankly, is when you're in this situation, you need to seek counsel to find out what your rights are. And one of the things that, that Joe mentioned almost uh, uh, immediately came to mind were folks who were going and being pressured, being pressured uh, with these credit, credit collection agencies. And then, oh, do you have any source of funds? Yeah, I have a retirement yeah. fund. And they start yeah. using that retirement fund, and then all of a sudden, you know, that's gone or beaten into and then they finally go see an attorney like Joe and Joe says why didn't you come to me earlier and if, if I could yeah. say anything to anybody out there to, to any consumers that's listening uh, you know make sure you, you get to an attorney and, and find out what your rights are before you do anything there's all kinds of protections for you out there and, and Joe is just the type of person when you're being hounded by these creditors that you need to you know pick up the phone call them up or, or some other bankruptcy attorney and, and say I need to come in and see you and talk to you because I may or may not have a situation that I need to file bankruptcy right away exactly and that you know the you have keyed on the exact reason that we developed this Consumer's Law Journal program in addition to our Thursday show. You know, again, our Thursday show being for lawyers and practice tips and referral generation and marketing and networking. And, you know, but this Tuesday show is so important because, you know, to the extent that we're broadcasting to, you know, consumer-based audience, they don't know and they need to know. And unless they hire a lawyer, they, all they know is what people tell them in the line at Jewel. You know, and, and grocery store, uh, you know, is, <laughs> grocery store advice is not the best advice. Right, Joe? 
That is correct. And, and once again, about this retirement fund issue, it's really, I, I, I almost teared up in my office several times when people come in, they're 70 years old, and they've spent everything they had. And yeah, they're going to get yeah. a fresh start, but there's nowhere for them to go. Yeah. They, they, what now, are they going to do, be a greeter at Walmart? They're, 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 yeah. They could live another 30 years, and there's no funds to, to, to take care of them. All right, well, let's ask this now. Now, how does the procedure work? So someone comes into your office, um, just walk us through what someone could expect. Okay, typically the way my office works is I will um, email an intake form so that when they come in, I've already had a chance to go over everything myself, and then I can talk to them about pertinent issues regarding their case rather than doing stuff like taking down names and addresses and things like that. Um, If we decide to go forward, uh, we'd prepare a petition. We'd email them a copy of the petition for them to read. They're going to sign it, sign off on it. We'll file that petition on the Internet. 20 to 40 days after that, uh, there would be a 341 meeting or a meeting of creditors. Um, this, If it's in Cook County, this is going to happen at uh, 219 uh, South Dearborn. If it's in DuPage County, it's going to be in the DuPage County Courthouse. Will County, it's at the Joliet City Hall. There are a number of locations. Um, at the 341 meeting, uh, the trustee will be there along with myself or one of my associates, and the uh, debtors will be there. They're going to be asked questions about their income, their expenses, their assets, their liabilities. Once again, typically at the end of a 341 meeting, there's a finding of no assets. Um, the uh, debtors have to take another class, and then eight weeks after the 341 meeting, they're discharged from their debts. So the whole process takes from beginning to end about 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. Is it expensive process or affordable? What are the options? Uh, for Chapter 7, you're talking about $1,900 total. Uh, for a Chapter um, 13, it would be about $3,800 total. Now, is that money? when does that money have to be paid usually? For Chapter 7, uh, we require that all the money be paid up front. Uh, for Chapter 13, some money would be paid up front and uh, the balance would be paid in, as part of the plan between 36 and 60 months. Okay, 60 months. That's uh, You can get a 60-month plan. Yeah. Wow. Is that now, does it, what are they, uh, is there anyone who is the decision maker who says yes or no on, you know, 30 months or 60 months? Do you have to qualify for a 60-month plan? That would depend on a number of factors. Generally, the debtor and the debtor's attorney are going to decide how long the plan is going to run, and then that has to be approved by the bankruptcy court. Okay. Um, Now, let me see if I have some of my follow-up questions here. Um, uh, Business. Can you just quickly uh, talk about business uh, bankruptcy? Because we may have, you know, what happens if, um, you know, husband and wife are going to do a a Chapter 7 or a 13 and a uh, husband has, uh, you know, a typical job, or let's say a husband just lost his job, um, and wife has a business, um, or vice versa. How how does that come into play? What happens with the that business? That actually comes into play fairly often. Uh, number one, it depends how the business is organized, so whether it's a sole proprietorship or it has some kind of corporate ownership. Um, so if it's a sole proprietorship, it's going to be included with in, inside of the debt the debtor's assets and inside the debtor's bankruptcy. So maybe if we're going to continue the business, we'll do it as a Chapter 13, or if we're not going to continue the business, we would just do everything as a Chapter 7. If there's a LLC or corporations, uh, some kind of setup like that, uh, then uh, once again we have to decide whether or not we want to keep the business going. If we're not going to keep the business going, we would do a Chapter 7 and uh, a corporation could not get a discharge in a Chapter 7, but be one, one, it's one way to organize all the debt, and then the debtors know, the creditors know that they're not going to get paid anything out of the corporation. doesn't prevent the debtor from starting a new business. So, for example, let's say uh, uh, the debtor was running Acme Company and put that through Chapter 7, and the next day opens Acme Company number 2. And, and starts operating his business again, because typically these small businesses are going to be service businesses or some kind of very light manufacturing or something like that, and that basically the business is going to be the person. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if it's a larger ongoing concern with employees and things like that, we would look at maybe doing what's called a Chapter 11 bankruptcy uh 
Chapter 11 bankruptcies are very complicated and very expensive, so it would really depend on what they wanted to do with the business going forward. Mm-hmm. Now that would be when uh, uh, the chapter, I mean, when, oh, what's it? Who was it? Was it Kmart who went out, or one of the one of the big box stores? And the bankruptcy took a long time. I remember that, and they still continue to operate until they they come out of, um, um, you know, their bankruptcy. Well, the most famous one was United Airlines, uh, which was in bankruptcy for I believe eight years. Wow. And when they were all done, there was nothing left of the employees' pension plan. Wow. So that's what you know. Yeah. How, <laughs> do you um how about percentage of your uh clients do you get involved in in some of the in the business things how far do you um get involved with those We're more focused on the consumer area we do we do some business bankruptcies but probably only about 10% of our practice Mm-hmm. Well, Jim Thompson's out there to help people get clients now so that hopefully that the our law firms won't be going to bankrupt bankruptcy right Jim I hope so um <laughs> Joe, I know when I was practicing law, which was was before the, um, I didn't do much bankruptcy, but I I know that um, one of the things that people said when they had small businesses is just just go out of business, just do a, you know, don't even bother doing a Chapter 7 because it's not worth it, just kind of, and again, that gets obviously into the type of business, et cetera, but just do what they call a poor man's bankruptcy, just stop doing business and start up somewhere else. And that is certainly we got, about a, we got about a minute left, so we got a couple minutes left. So this is going to be our last question. Okay, I was going to say that that certainly is an option, and that's one of the reasons why we set up a corporation so we have that shell structure so that the creditors can just go after the shell. The only reason why I would recommend that, uh, doing a bankruptcy in a business uh, context would be that there's one place for all the creditors to find out that it's in bankruptcy and there, there's no. Uh, residual kickback where people are coming after them three years later when a corporation is already closed. Got it, got it. Um, Joe, do you have any uh, parting advice or words or give some contact information? Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to answer anybody's bankruptcy questions. Uh, feel free to call us at uh, 630-928-0100, Um and I wish everyone good luck. All right. Now you do free consultations, is that correct? That is correct. All right. All right. And you and also we point people at the show. Uh, we have a lot of. We just developed a whole uh, great. I feel like we just taught a class in bankruptcy law. <laughs> so um, you know, definitely, Jim. If you have anybody who you find who is interested to know, point them at this for uh, this broadcast. You can get the archive right on our website at alrpra.com. I certainly will do that, and of course, when I come across somebody that asks about bankruptcy, I'll certainly pass out Joe's telephone number. That's great. Joe, don't be surprised. You'll also probably find each other on Facebook. Jim is uh, Jim does what he says he's going to do, and he is very passionate about helping uh, you know attorneys and business owners get the job done. Okay. Well, All right. Thank well, thank you very you much both. for inviting me. Oh yeah, thanks for thanks for being on the show. Um, You're welcome. You know, it, we. Uh, May do a follow-up, um, you know, as time uh, permits. Um, I also want to thank Jim Thompson. I also want to thank our sponsors, the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Again, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group and credit damage expert George Finder. Again, this is a general information program designed to offer practice management tips and general advice. The advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice, and the results may vary and are based on the specifics of your matter. You're encouraged to privately consult a professional and should be advised that the laws may vary from state to state. To the comments made on the show. Comments again made on the show between uh, persons who do not constitute attorney client relationship, and all callers remain confidential unless they, of course, want to tell them who they are. Uh, and uh, the rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Again, ALRPRA Law Talk Radio's mission is to bring our attorney and non attorney audiences the tips and tools with practice area information they can use to be better informed practitioners as well as consumers as we all navigate the always evolving practice of law and what it entails. With guests and listeners located nationwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. ALRPRA's underlying values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full-service law practice management available, available nationwide when professional quality or matters to your firm. Again, we thank you and ask you to please tune in next week for the next episode of the Consumer's Law Journal, but also not to miss the Lawyer's Toolbox on 
Thursday afternoon. And again, all of the uh, broadcasts are available on ALRPRA.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and uh, pretty much every other social media channel out there. So uh, tell one, tell all. We're here to con- uh, you know, teach our consumers all sorts of good information and uh, share of our guests. So thank you both again, and uh, I'll talk to you both soon. Thank you much. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Joe. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye.